0: Welcome to this week's Rashi Shia, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So you join us for the Zoom edition of the Rashi Shia, and we are in Perak Yud-Dalad, and we're up to Pasuk Yud-Zayin. And the story so far is Abraham has intervened in the war of the four kings against the five kings Uh, the four kings were beating the five kings lot was kidnapped as part of the war and avram took up arms together either with his 318 honey or maybe that was just eliezer alone and they were successful and the melech saddam was previously fled he fled to uh, the, the valley of the pits we read about in Perik Yudalah Yud. And now we take up the story in Yudalad Yud Zion. So Abraham has returned from the war successfully. But Melech Saddam Likroto and the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Shuvo Mechakot et Kardala Omer. After he returned, that's Abraham returned from smiting Kardala Omer and the kings who are with him, el to a place called Emek shavet, who Emek HaMelech. That is also Emek HaMelech. So Rashi doesn't concentrate on anything other than that last bit, this name of a place, which is Emek shavet. And I think Rashi's really got two questions. One is, what does Emek shavet mean? And number two, how is it Emek shavet and also Emek HaMelech? Is it one or is it the other? How is it both? So Rashi actually gives two answers, and he says, emek shavet kach shamo, that is its name. Um, so shaver is just a name, like Fred, George, or Thomas, as we will see, contrasting with the second explanation, where we're actually understanding the meaning of the word shavet. So Rashi says, kach shamo, that's its name, kakardumo, Lameshar mafane, As the Targum explains, the plane of Mafana. So Rashi's already said that the Targum translates many things as Meshar, plain, and Rashi's already said that many things have a different their planes, but they get individual names. And this is one of them. The Targum calls it meshar mafaneh, and the name of that is emek Shadeh. Now, but mafaneh has got a particular meaning which relates to Shade. Panui, it's empty, it's it's removed mi ilonot, umikol miksho. From trees and any other obstacle. In other words, it's a space that's been cleared. And that comes from the targum Mafana, which is related to Panui. It's empty. It's been cleared out. And continues Rashi, and we'll see how this fits all together. Emek HaMelech. So we said in the Pasuk, it's Emek Shaveh, which is Emek HaMelech. So we said so far that Emek Shaveh is the name of the place, and it's the place that's cleared out of any trees or obstacles. Beit Risa, Del-Malka. So the Targum translates Emechamelech as Beit Risa de Malka, the house or the place of Risa of the king. Now what does that mean? Beit Ris Echad Shahu Shloshim Kanim. So Ris <coughs> is a measurement. And Rashi tells us that when Targum when Uncle translates Emechamelech, as risa tamalka. it means a place of a certain size which is reserved for the king. The size is a reese, and a reese, says Rashi, is kanim, 30 kanim, and one kanah. Rashi doesn't say this as soon as we know it, is six amot. So if you want to translate it into measurements, an amot is roughly 50 centimeters, six amot is roughly three meters, um, 30 is therefore 90 meters, yeah. So it's 90 meters by 90 meters. It's an area, it's not insignificant, it's not small. Now, so what have we got so far? It's called Emek Sheva, that's its name. And that means, in the, based on the Targum, it's a place which is empty of obstacles. And it's Emek HaMelech, which is a place of a certain size reserved for the king. Why does the king need a place which is 90 meters square, which is devoid of obstacles, says Rashi, uh, it's reserved for the king for his sport. And, and perhaps it's the sort of place where they raced horses, i.e. a hippodrome. Um, in those days when we could travel, it seems like another lifetime. I was in Israel a few months ago and I was had a tour of Caesarea with the Scopus pun kids, and I saw the hippodrome, which was built for the Roman aristocracy. And it's amazing, it's a huge flat place on the uh, shore where they raced horses. I don't know exactly the dimensions of that, probably bigger than 90 meters. So Emek Shaver is a place, it's got a name, it's called Emek Shaver, and it's also Emek HaMelech, it's the place where the king uses to have his sport. That's the first explanation. And then Umidrash Midrash and the Midrash says, Emek Shehashvu sham kol haumat, it's the valley where all the nations got equalized, and that's Shaver. So, this it's not its name per se, but, or even if it is its name, it's a name which means something particular. It's Shahushva Sham All the nations equalized there, Behimlichu et Avram Alehem, and they crowned Avraham over them, Lenasi Elohim Ulakatzin as a Nasi Elohim, a prince of God, and a Katsin, and a chieftain, or some sort of military leader. Now, by the way, Nasi Elohim, um, this will explain how the Ben Chait, when Abraham came to buy Maratamachpela, uh, in Perak Kaf... Well, I'll check in a minute. The beginning of Parashat Chayesara, anyway. Um, Perak Kaf beginning of Parshant Chai the Bnei Chet said to Avram, Nasi Elohim You are a Nasi Elohim, you are a prince of God. Now, based on this Rashi, based on this Midrash, which Rashi is quoting, that wasn't just a nice expression. It referred to some sort of legal status that Avram had been given, and he'd been given it here. So Emek Shaver is the place where they were equalized who Because it's the place where they appointed a king over them. So Rashi's second explanation says that the Emek Sheva became Emek ha-melach. And I think that's the difference between the first explanation and the second. In the first explanation, Emek Sheva is the name of Emek ha-melach. They're the same thing. They, and they exist simultaneously. In the second explanation, it's more of a process. Emek Sheva becomes Emek because it's where they appoint Abraham. Um, So they call him a nasi al which, as I said, refers to what we are told later that the Bnei Chet said to Abraham, and katzin, Rashi adds that in, the Midrash adds that in, presumably because Abraham has established his military credentials, and therefore they want to appoint him as a katzin over them. There's a very cute observation that there's a fundamental difference between the two explanations of what is emekamelech. According to the first explanation, it's a place for the king's sport. And you can sort of hear the overtones of decadence. Chazal were very negative about circuses and stadia. Um, they didn't think it was a good idea to have a great big stadium in Yerushalayim, but other people have thought differently. And when they talk about people going to the theatres and the st- stadia, using the Roman words, um, that clearly is a negative interpretation. So the king having a place dedicated the tzachik, for his sport and is a, it's a mocking word. Um, it doesn't sound good. According to the second explanation, what a wonderful thing happened in this Emeka Menach. They recognize the superiority on a moral and, and every other basis of Abraham Avinu, and they appointed him their king. So it, they are two separate explanations in a the sense they're mutually exclusive, but if they weren't, you can imagine there's a progression here. The place that was used for decadent sport is now used for appointing Abraham as the Nasi Elohim. Let's move on. The next Pasuk success in Pasuk Yudchet, Umalki Tzedek, Melach Shalim, Hotsi Lechem Choe Kohen Elion." Malki Tzedek, this mysterious figure who appears here and nowhere else, the king of a place called Shalem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a Kohen to Kel Elyon, to Hashem Most High. So who is this Malki Tzedek? Now Rashi brings a Midrash, not as a second explanation, as the only explanation, but he calls it Midrash Agada. So he acknowledges it's a Midrash rather than Peshat. But clearly he feels that there needs to be some identification of who this Melach Malki Tzedek is. Sorry. And also because of things that Rashi is going to say, that will only make sense if we know who Malki Tzedek is. And so Rashi says Midrash who who Shem Ben Noach. He is Shem. Shem the son of Noach, if you've forgotten who Shem is. And if you look at the dates and the chronology of how many years after Shem came out of a teva was Abraham born, and how many years Shem lived, you will see that Shem was still alive at this time in Abraham's life. So although, uh, it's sometimes hard to understand how these people live so long. Within the terms of what the Torah says about them, then we understand that uh, Shem was still alive. Now, Shem has actually been referred to in Rashi um, when the Hakanani Azba Aret in Bet Pasuk Vav. So, if you just turn back for a moment to Perakyud Bet Pasuk Vav. The Pasuk said, The Canaanite was then in the land. And as we said then, um, Rashi understands that the Canaanite he was then in the land, but not previously, because the Canaanites had been conquering the land from its rightful owners. And if you look at there in Rashi, Baaret, Israel, nizaro shel shem. Shel shem. Nafla. The Canaanite, who is the grandson of um, Ham, conquered the land of Canaan from its rightful owners, who were the descendants of Shem, which, by the way, implies that when Abraham is given it, by it's actually being returned to the rightful owners, i.e. the Jews, who are descendants of Shem. Anyway, um, because uh, it, we know that it fell into the portion of Shem, when Noah divided the land to his sons, Shneema, because it says, O Malki Melach Shalem. Malki was the king of Shalem. And there, accidentally, it doesn't actually say who Malki is, but it takes as a given that Malki is shame. Otherwise, that previous Rashi makes no sense. So Malki is shame. There's another reason that we have to identify Malki as shame, because this person is a Kohen. And there's no reference to anybody else who might have been a Kohen uh, in the whole of history, actually. Um, but the last person we know who offered sacrifices was Noach. Now, it might be a bit of a stretch, but someone to explain that Noach was a Balmun, He was blemished. We learn in last week's parsha in Emor that a person who is blemished cannot be a Kohen serving in the Bet Mikdash. Why was Noach a Balmun Because he was bitten while he was in the Teva. And therefore, he would have uh, had somebody else to actually offer the sacrifice for him. Although the Torah doesn't say it, but we can assume he would have asked his um, primary son, the son who was the best of the three. So it makes sense that Shem was offering sacrifices on Noah's behalf. So it makes sense that Shem was a Cohen. Okay, so that's why, um, for various reasons, we want to know who Malki Tzedek is, and we answer that he is Shem ben Noah. And this Malki Tzedek, brings out Lechem be'yayin. By the way, Rashi doesn't say here, uh, in fact, Rashi doesn't say anywhere, that Shalem, uh, until you get to the last pasuk in Yechezkel, where Rashi actually uh, brings this midrash, that Shalem was the original name of Yerushalayim. Shalem is the last part of the name Yerushalayim. When Abraham was at the Akedah, uh, which took place on Har Abayit, which is in Yerushalayim, he named it Hashem Yireh. And so the Midrash says, and Rashi brings this down at the end of Sophia that Hashem said, well, what can I call this place? If I call it Shalem, I'll upset Avraham, who calls it Yireh. If I call it Yireh, I'll upset the original inhabitants, Shem, who called it Shalem. So Hashem says, I will put the two names together. Yireh, Shalem, becomes Yerushalayim. So that means that Malki Tzedek is the king of Shalem, which is the center part of Eretz Yisrael, which is Yerushalayim. Although Rashi doesn't say that here. Let's get back to the So Malki said it brings bread and wine. That's what they do for the tired people, the exhausted people of the war. That apparently, Rashi is wondering, or Rashi thinks that we're wondering, why bread and wine? And why not a, a more sumptuous feast? Uh, if you're gonna bring out food, then maybe bring out something nicer. Um, but apparently bread and wine was the minhag to give to people coming back from the war. So that's why Malchisedek gave that to Avraham. And he showed him that he had nothing in his heart against him, that he had killed his children. A lot of pronouns there. Shem, Malchisedek showed Abraham that he, Malchisedek had no grudge against Abraham. That abraham had killed shem's children well how do we know he killed shem's children because if we know who the five the four kings were one of them was kardala omer the king of elim which is part of the territory of shem as we learned at the end of pasha's noach um uh, Amrafel is nimrod who's a ben ham but kardala omer is a ben shem so kardala omer and maybe some of the others were part of shem's children so Abraham, so Shem was showing Abraham that Shem had no grudge against Abraham. Incidentally, Rashi doesn't suggest that these are two separate reasons. Rashi puts them together. There's no devarachair separating them. So the lechem behind served two purposes at the same time. One, it was the normal minhag. That's why that particular menu was chosen. And two, Shem went out of his way to give it to Abraham to demonstrate that he had no grudge against him. So that's one explanation why lechem v'yayim. U'midrash agada, and there's also a midrash. Remez lo al v'al sham It's an allusion to the uh, meal offerings and the wine libations that his children will offer there. So, midrash away from shut. Peshat is, that's the normal stuff to give. The Midrash, this is here for a very special non shat reason. Why does actually have to bring this? So I saw a very nice answer, but the word order in the Pasuk is awkward for the first explanation, because it should say, Malki tzedek, Kohen or Melech Shaleim, Kohen Elyon, Lechem V'yayin why does it add afterwards the hu kohen When that should be part of the description of Malki Tzedek? So the answer is maybe the lechem beyayin are related to the kahuna of Malki Tzedek. Sounds like, and this is the way the second explanation reads the pasuk, Malkitzedek nela shalem. What did he do? And why? Why is that significant? The kohen because he is a kohen. So there's something sacrificial about the lechem v'yayim. So what can be sacrificial? What can be kohuna related about lechem v'yayim? Answer, But it's a remez to the menachot and the nasachim. By the way, now fits nicely that Melech Shalem is the king of Yerushalayim, although well, as I say, Rashi doesn't say that, but it works nicely. But that very, he's the king and he's on the spot where the Beit Hamikdash is going to be built and where those offerings will be given. And it just occurs to me that when it says, banav, that he will offer there his children, referring to Abraham's descendants. It's also Shem's descendants, obviously, because Abraham is a descendant of Shem, so the descendants of Abraham are also the descendants of Shem. So it's a sort of get together that Malki is rejoicing in the fact that Abraham's descendants, who are also his descendants, are going to do something priestly on that very spot which is related to bread and wine, they're going to offer menachot or the nesachim. Um, There's an interesting question answered, asked is if Malki Sedeq, according to his midrash, is Maramez, is alluding to things that are offered in the Bet midrash, then what is most often offered in the Bet midrash? We're just coming to the end of Sefer Bayikra. What would we think most commonly that is sacrificed? What could Malki Sedeq have offered along with the bread and the wine? He could have offered some meat because animals are sacrificed big time. So maybe it would have been nice. If I were there, I would have preferred a meat sandwich than just bread, but why no korbanot? So one answer is that a korban is usually brought as a kapara for some sort of sin or transgression, and it's not nice to talk about things that are transgression related. There's another answer, which might be a little bit of a stretch, but is very clever, and that is that uh, Malkit Tzedek is alluding to the two things which are offered in the bet Midrash and not elsewhere. Korbanot are offered in the Midbar, as we know. So there's a debate about how many Korbanot were offered in the Midbar, but certainly some Korbanot were offered in the Midbar. So we also know, if we get into the details of Corbanot and where on the in the midbar and the Bamot in the Bet Midrash, we learned that the Menachot and the were only offered in the Bet Midrash. And if you look very carefully in Rashi, we can see perhaps, but that's what he means when he says Shiikravu sham banav, that Bnei Zedek brought things which refer to the meal offerings and the wine libations that will be offered there and only there according to this reading of Rashi, by his descendants, as opposed to Karbonot, which will be offered elsewhere. But the Melech Shalem, king of Yerushalayim, is particularly interested in the things that will be offered Dafka in Yerushalayim. Nice idea. Not sure that's maybe stretching Rashi too far, but it's worth sharing. So then what happens? What does Markitzedek do? And he blessed him and it's clearly Malkit uh, uh, is blessing him because of the next words, Yomar. and he said, Baruch Avram l'kel Blessed is Avram to the high God, Koneh Shemayim So what is Koneh Shemayim va'Aretz"? What does it mean who has bought heaven and earth? So Rashi says, Komo Oseh It's equivalent to the maker of heaven and earth, which is how it's expressed in Tehillim. And then Rashi, so, so you might wonder, what does it mean, koneh? HaKadosh Baruch Hu went to a shop and bought heaven and earth? It doesn't make any sense. So Rashi says, "Don't it doesn't really mean who bought heaven and earth. It means who made heaven and earth. It's equivalent to saying, so that's fine, because we know HaKadosh Baruch is the maker of heaven and earth. But then Rashi goes on to say, by making it, he acquired it to be his. So it's not just its equivalent to Osei Shemayim It's the same message, essentially. Hashem has done the same thing, Oseh Shemayim But because Hashem is the maker of Shemayim v'aretz, he is also the owner of Shemayim. If you make your own thing, you own that thing. And Hashem, as it were, made the universe. So that's why he is the owner of the universe. So that's why the Torah can use the word koneh as equivalent to the word Osir, because by doing going through the process of a he becomes the acquirer, the owner, of Shemayim Ba'aretz. Only one little question. If it's all equivalent to osay Shemayim Ba'aretz, why can't we just say, why did it say Kona? And Rashi there has to go out of his way to explain why Konah is the equivalent of Oseh. So I want to refer you to um, Rashi on Perak Kafdalad Hasid Zayin. Perak Kafdalad Hasid Zayin. So this is where Rashi, sorry, uh, Abraham is sending his servant, whom Rashi identifies as Eliezer, to find a wife for Yitzhak. And if you look at Pasuk, uh, we'll start with Pasuk above. Uh, no, we'll go straight to Pasuk time. Abraham refers to Hashem Elokei Hashemayim. Hashem, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house. Uh, that's all we need to see. And Rashi asks a question there. Why does it say Hashem Elokei Hashemayim? Velo amar ve'elokei ha'aretz. And it doesn't say God of the earth, Ulamala Amar, but earlier on in this parak in Pasik Gimel, Hashem says, sorry, Abraham says to his servant, So, in Pasik Gimel, Hashem is Eloke Hashemayim, Eloke Haretz, but in Pasik Zion, Hashem is just Eloke Hashemayim. That's the question. Amarlo continues Rashi, I'm in Rashi on Kaftal at Zion, sorry to jump around, but you'll see why. Now, in the ten, while Abraham is speaking and asking um, uh, Eliezer to take an oath, at that time Hashem is indeed God of heaven and God of earth. Because I, Abraham, have made the human race aware of that. But when he took me from my father's house, he was the God of heaven below Elokei Haaretz, and not the God of the earth. So that's how Avraham resolves the contradiction in Perak Haftalah between Pasek Gimel and Pasek Zion. Pasek Zion is a flashback, as we would now say. It's a flashback to an earlier time in history when Avraham's mission was just starting. And at that time, God was only Elokei HaShemayim. But now, says Avraham, he is Elokei Shemayim and because I, Abraham have taught the world that Hashem is the God of the world. That is Abraham's mission, to teach the world that they are subject to Hakarish Baruch Hu. And he had succeeded in doing that, as he says himself, says Rashi. It's not enough to teach people that Hashem is Osei Shemaim baruch The mission is to teach them that he is Koneh Shemaim baruch He's the owner, he's the master. He is the one to whom we must be loyal. That's the message of Abraham. So that message of Abraham, which at this point is relayed by by Tzedek, who has the same agenda, it's not enough to say Oseh. It's important that he says Koneh. That's the whole point of Marky and ultimately Abraham teaching everyone that Hashem is the owner, the ruler, the master of the world. Just occurs to me, the most obvious thing, which I hadn't actually thought of until this moment, the Midrash obviously identifies Shem as the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva of Shem and Eva, where Yitzchak studied, where Yaakov studied, where they were telling people about God. And Avraham, in a sense, took on the mantle of Shem and Eva, but he did it in a much more outreach-inspired way, as we would say today. So it's no coincidence that he is speaking the same language as Malki who is Shem, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva of Shem and Eva. Okay. Pasuk Kaf continues, Marki um, I'm looking at all, some of your faces and some of your names on this Zoom screen. Please remember, who anyone wants to raise a question or an observation, please feel free to do so. But we will go on to Pasuk Kaf. Kel And blessed be God the Most High, who has Aliv Migein untranslated, your enemies, into your hand. And then it says, He gave him, a tithe, from all. So the first thing Rashi has to help us with is to understand the word migain. It might look like it's something to do with the word shield, to protect, but that doesn't make any sense at all because it would then mean, blessed is God who has shielded your enemies in your hand. So it doesn't mean that. It means something completely different. So Rashi tells us what it means. Asher share Asher Hizgir, who has closed up your enemies in your hand, i.e. put your enemies into your hand and sealed them, lock them, imprison them in your hand. And Rashi brings a Pasuk from Hoshea where the Navi is saying, would Hashem do this to you? No, would Hashem do... Another bad thing to you? No. Would Hashem amagencha Israel? And there, if you look at the context, it clearly means would Hashem hand you over Israel? So magencha is to hand you over to your enemies, and that's what it means here that Hashem is praised, is blessed by Malchizedek because he migen zarecha He handed over your enemies, you Abraham into your hand. That's what the word me means. And I nervously say, this is a straightforward Rashi, which is telling us that's what the word means. And then we have the phrase at the end of the verse, He gave him from all. And here we have the classic problem of pronouns. Who is giving whom? And normally we would assume that the subject of Bayitain is the last subject identified. The last subject identified is Marketsedek, because Marketsedek has been doing the talking. Marketsedek was the subject of the verb at the beginning of Yutet, which has been the last substantive verb, Vayevarachehu, Vayomar. And he said, Baruch Avraham, Avraham. So it must be talking. So, so it sounds like Marketsedek gave to him, Aita Abraham Masseh. But that doesn't make sense because Masa is what a non-Kohen gives to a Kohen or a Lady or a Kohen. So it makes sense for Avraham to be giving the Masa to Malkin And Rashi, in order to sort this out, tells us Bayitain lo Avram. Avram is the subject of Bayitain. Rashi needs to say that because it's not what the grammar would have implied. The grammar would have implied it's Malkin because he's the last mentioned subject, and it's not. Therefore, Rashi tells us it is Abraham. And then Rashi has something to say on ma'aser mikol. Rashi says on the words ma'aser mikol, a mikol, asher alo. Lafi shahaya kohen. Mikol asher lo. Why does Rashi have to say at mikol asher lo? But well, there's two possibilities, and the first is, I deliberately didn't translate Nikol as from everything, as we might translate it in English, because really, in Hebrew, it means from all of, and it needs to be followed by a description of what it is all of. Now, I haven't tested, and I have some uh, native Ibrat speakers amongst our group tonight, um, how often you can use the word kol just to mean everything, but... Um, Uh, and I haven't gone through the whole of Tanakh, but it seems to me that certainly in many, many cases, kol is an adjective meaning all of something. So what is the something? So Rashi has to fill out what the something is. If you think of it, uh, the proper translation, according to what I'm saying, is mikol would be from all of, and then that would make it obvious why Rashi feels he has to add something. From all of what? From all that he had. Mikol, asher, lo. It's also relevant that, as we're about to see, that uh, Abraham is in possession of some other stuff. He's in possession of the spoils that he got back from the four kings whom he defeated. And they're going to come up in the very next verse. No? Uh, Yes, in the very next verse. So um, Rashi could be pointing out that Abraham is not giving Maser from the stuff that he's temporarily holding, which is not his, because as you'll see, he's going to show that it's not his. So Mikola Sherlo implies from everything that he had up till that point, and not anything that he was holding, which he's about to give back to Melech Saddam. And then Rashi adds kohen, and I've already explained, but that's why Rashi knows that Abraham is giving Maser to Melchizedek and not the other way around, because you give Maser to a Cohen, and we've already been told that Marki is a Kohen. Abraham is not. So Rashi says that's how we know that Abraham was the one giving the Masa and why Abraham was giving the Masa, because Marki was a Kohen. We move on to Pasuk Kaf Aleph. So Melech Sidon um, appeared in Pasuk Zayin uh, and then hasn't appeared again. But we have a question. Sarah has used the raise hand uh, technique Yes, Sarah. I wonder if the rab was just about to address this, but this little episode with Markli Tzedek seems to me pretty sudden. I guess you have, we have like, like he's, I don't know if he's already out there or on his way out and then suddenly Markli Tzedek pops up and like, as in, without much indication of where he came from or when he arrived and who's coming, who's going. Like, did it all happen in front of Melech Saddam? Um, your guess is as good as mine, but I would read it as, yes, it did. That Melech Saddam, um, in Pasuk Yud-Zayin, Melech Saddam came out to meet him. So I guess that he's met him, or he's very, very close to meeting him. And then Marquis Tzedek pops up. You're right, Maki Tzedek pops up, and it's mysterious why Maki Tzedek pops up and gets three sukim here and then disappears again. Um, my answer, which is a bit of a cop out, is Rashi doesn't talk about the mystery of Mark popping up, so I'm not going to talk about that in this year. But um, I refer you to other Meforshim um, who've got things to say. But in terms of your technical question, sorry if that's a bit of a cop out. Uh, in terms of your technical question, um, it seems to me that Medech Salam is standing there because he now, without needing to approach, he starts talking in Pasuk Kaphala. So what is the significance of Maki being there in the presence of Melech Saddam? That's an interesting question, and I don't have anything to add at this stage. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for the observation. So, as we promised, in Kavala, Melech Saddam speaks up. el <inaudible> li give me the, literally, the soul, the kach lach, and the property take for yourself. So by the way, Rashi doesn't say this, or it sort of implies it. No, Rashi doesn't say this. But uh, it's a well-known thought, which I will just break the rule, but I just stress that this is only going to be a Rashi shit, that uh, Melech Saddam is terrified that Abraham will educate these people to be on Abraham's side, the side of Hashem and the side of good and truth. And Melech Saddam, being the ultimate person from Saddam, doesn't want to take that risk. That's why he's particular. Tainli at nefesh give me the people. Anyway, Rashi wants to explain the words Tainli Hanefesh. So Rashi says, Min Hashvi Shali Shahitzalta, from the captives of mine that you saved. Captives of mine, not, my cap- not the people whom I took captive, but the people of Saddam who were taken captive, and you saved them. For this, by the way, the first time we learn, but Lot was not the only captive. Um, Lot seems to be the entire focal point of Abraham's involvement, but it sounds like there were other people c- taken captive whom Abraham freed along with Lot. But um, Melech Saddam wants these people back. And then he continues to say, li return to me, the bodies, doesn't mean dead bodies, it means the people with bodies, alone, alone because the rechush you can keep. So Rashi is answering two questions. Number one, why nefesh? And number two, why it's in the singular? And the answer is, well, you don't have to be mediac; you don't have to be precise about either. Because Rashi replaces the word nefesh by the word gufim. So by doing that, he answers both questions. Number one, what about the singular? Why does it say nefesh? Well, Rashi in a few places says that sometimes a collective noun has a singular form. Um, that's sepharadea. Now we all know the there the reason it's in the singular is because there was one sepharadea which the Mitzrim then hit and it turned into lots of frogs. We all know that story. What we don't all know because it's not taught in kindergarten is that it's only Rashi's second pshat. And Rashi's first pshat about sepharadea is it's a collective noun, meaning frogs in general, even though it's a singular. And similarly here, nefesh, it's a singular, but it refers to gufim in the plural. Uh, uh, sort of saying, if you're worried about that, get over it. It's not something to worry about because a singular can have a plural meaning. What's perhaps a little bit more interesting is the switch from nefesh and guf. Now, we all feel that nefesh and guf are not uh, interchangeable on the contrary. Report to nefesh, report the guf. They're two complementary but distinct things. Says Rashi, the way to understand this is that Melech Saddam was asking for the people. So He uses the word nefesh because a nefesh is inside a goof. But really he wants the goof. So that's why Rashi replaces nefesh by goofim because that's really what Melech Saddam is asking for. He calls it nefesh because that is a way to describe a goof, a person, because they have a nefesh within them. But we can go deeper. We can always go deeper. But here, I think, is an obvious way of going deeper. And this perhaps a little bit relates to where I came in on this one about uh, why Melech Saddam wanted the people back in particular and wanted to get them away from Abraham. Because while they are with Abraham, they are a nefesh. When they are returned back to Melech Saddam, they return back to being Gulfim. It's beautiful. It's there in the Rashi. Because while they're with Avraham, Avraham can bring out their nefesh, can work on their soul. But as soon as they return to Melech Saddam, the soul element they're in is as if it's not. Because once they're back in Saddam, then all they are are gufim, without a nefesh, without an ability to grow spiritually. And it's interesting, but the Gemara in the Darim, Lamad Kbet Ahmed (laughs) Aleph, criticizes Abraham for giving back the people to Melech Saddam and for not keeping them so that they can come under the wings of the Shekhinah. And that perhaps is implied by the word nefesh, that while they are with Abraham, he can develop their nefesh and he can bring them closer to a Ganesh Baruchel in an atmosphere of spirituality, but he gives them back and they become gufim, reserved for their physicality. So, what's Abraham going to say in response to this suggestion? Abraham kaf bet. Avram el says to Melech Saddam, Harimoti yadi el Hashem. I have lifted up my hand to Hashem. So let's just straight away see two words of Rashi, to explain what lifting up his hand means. Loshon shavua. It's an expression of an oath. So, harimoti et yadi el Hashem, I have made a promise to Hashem. Sorry, Siri. Um, I have made a promise to Hashem, kel elyon, konei shomayim ba'aretz, say, God Most High, who acquires heaven and earth. That's how we can see, by the way, that Abraham and Malkit Tzedek are singing from the same hymn sheet. Should I say, lahavdil? No, I don't think so. It is the same hymn sheet. Um, because they both say, Hashem koneh shamayim v'aretz. And after all, it fits in what I suggested earlier, but that is Abraham's mission, that he's telling the world and starting in Sodom of all places. Not starting, sorry. He's telling Melech Saddam of all people, but Hashem is kone shamayim Aretz because Melech Saddam probably is not aware of that. And he goes on to say in Kafkimal, I'm not going to take anything. We'll see what he means in Kafkimal. But let's look at the rest of Rashi. After the words Loshan Shavua, he says, Marim ani etyadi the kel elyon. I'm going to leave that untranslated for a moment. The khaim. And similarly, pasak from pasu a pasuk from perakafbet, bi nishpati, by me I have sworn, um, which means Nishpa ani, I swear. The chain, natati kesef hasade kach mi meneni, another pasuk, I have given the money of the field, take it from me, which means, I am giving you the money of the field, take it from me. So there are uh, two other psukim, which Rashi brings to prove his point. What is his point? It's actually a very simple grammatical point. It's about tense. Because Harimoti, Harimoti, Et yadi, sorry, Yadi is in the past tense. I have taken an oath, but that doesn't make sense. Because when Melech Saddam says, Give me the Nefesh, and Abraham is going to, and, and you can keep the, the money, and is going to say in Pasak Kafkimor, I'm not going to take any. Because what he means is, I am taking an oath by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but I'm not going to take any of your money. It can't mean I've already taken an oath because the subject hasn't arisen before. It's not that Abram is some earlier stage saying, if Melech Saddam should ever offer me money, then I'm taking an oath now, but I'm not going to accept. No, he's taking the oath now. And what he really should swear, say is, I swear by Almighty God that I'm not going to take any of your money. And that's what Rashi means when he says, Marim ani et yadi lekel elyon. Rashi translates Harimalti, which is in the past, as Marim Ani, which is in the present. That's the point. And what do the other two examples do? They show how you can use the past tense when you mean the present tense. So I forget the context, I'm sorry, of Kafbet uh, Tet um, That is HaKadosh uh, Baruch actually talking to Abraham at the end of the Akedah. I have sworn by me. But what he actually means is, I am swearing now. And in the next passage when Abraham gives the money or offers the money uh, to buy Maratah from Ephron, he says, um, I have given the money, but he hasn't. He's offering it now. So Rashi explains that means, I am giving you money now. So Rashi brings two pasukim. interesting why he brings two, um, to prove that the torah can use a past tense when it means a present tense and in this case Arimoti yadi is translated as marim ani et yadi in the present tense so what is the promise that he has made kaf so in answer to the offer from melech saddam for all the stuff the spoils of war not the people but the property abraham replies as follows if from a thread to a shoelace, and if I take from all that is yours, so you should not say, I have made Abraham rich. So it's not quite clear exactly what he's promising, what Abraham is promising, or he said, I've taken an oath, but he's saying, no, I am not going to take, im mechut which is not actually, um, there's, no sub, there's no verb with that, which Rashi will explain. Ve-im ekach and following on from the oath, what it means here, ve-im I will not take from anything that is yours. So Rashi says, in kaf im ad na'al, a'kev min ha'shvi if, if in the sense of I promise that I will not. So to keep back for myself from what has been captured. I will not keep back from myself, even a thread or a shoelace. And what Rashi is doing there, and I sort of hinted already, more than hinted, I've said already, is there's no verb with What is Rashi, what is Abraham not doing with a thread or a shoelace? It's not clear because the next letter is vav. That's something different. And if I were to take from anything that is yours, without that vav, we might have thought that im ekach goes on what's before, goes on mechut for na'al. But because there's a vav there, that means we're starting a new, not quite a, well, a clause, I suppose. And we're finishing the previous clause. So the previous clause consists of the words im and there's no verb. There's not, What is Abraham not doing with those things? Rashi answers it. Abraham is not keeping those things from the uh, captured stuff for himself. So that's why Rashi adds atzmi min hashevi. Then the pasuk goes on im ekach mikol and if I were to take from anything of yours. The tomar says Rashi, and if you were to say, to give me a reward from your treasury, lo ekach, I will not take. So Rashi says the first phrase, as I've said, Rashi has to add the verb, but he's also saying that refers to Abraham turning down anything from what has been captured. And the second clause, Be'im ekach What What's mikola Shelach? It must be something else because it's a separate idea. He's already ruled out taking anything from what has been captured with the first words. So the second words must be, I'm also not going to take something else. For anything that is yours. And Rashi adds from your treasury to highlight that it means not from what is yours that I have retaken on the battlefield, but something else that is yours, namely what is in your treasury. and you shall not say, etc. Why should it? Why is it important to Abraham that Melech Saddam should not say, I made Abraham rich." who that Hashem has promised that He will make me rich. Shneema etc because the pasuk says at the beginning of Lecha, hashem said i will bless you and rashi said there and i showed it was consistent with rashi's understanding of baruch in other places it means blessed in property so when hashem said i will bless you it means hashem is going to make me rich and not anyone else so rashi is explaining why it's important for Abraham to say that you melech saddam are not going to say you made me rich because Hashem has said that Hashem will make me rich. There are two obvious questions to this last point of Rashi. One question is, it's like the story of the guy in the flood, and he's sitting on his roof, and he prays to God to save him, and a dinghy goes by, and then a helicopter goes by, and each time he says, um, I'm waiting for God to save me. And the punchline is, God tried to save him by sending in the boat and sending in the helicopter. You probably know the story. So, when Hashem says, I, Hashem, am going to bless you, why does that not allow for the possibility that Hashem's messenger is going to be Melech Saddam? After all, does Hashem, does Abraham think that the only way he can become rich is if gold falls from the sky? Surely not. That's not how we understand Hashem's interaction with us. That's the first question. And the second question is, Abraham is keen not to take a single bootstrap from Melech Saddam, but from Paro, who is also not a model of upright morality, he took lots and lots of stuff. And we know that he was very wealthy because of all the sheep and the flocks and the servants that he left Mitraim with. So why is he happy to take from Paro and not happy to take from Melech Saddam? So there are lots of possible suggestions. And I'm just going to give you the simplest one because to me it, it seemed to work pretty well. What is, the simplest answer is, Abraham is happy to take from Paro because that's Hashem's way of making him rich, which answers both questions. And then, now he is rich, he doesn't need to get any richer. Hashem's bracha has already been fulfilled. And it is Hashem who made him rich through the medium of Paro and maybe other events as well. And the bracha is fulfilled, so I don't need anybody else to make me more rich. Which also fits nicely with the midah of Abraham being satisfied, which is one of his midot. We learned that from PK Abbot, from um, I forget exactly where, but we're told that one of the attributes of Tamite Abraham Avino is ayin tov, is a good eye. And we're told also, but a good eye, is somebody who is happy with his lot. So who doesn't want more and more and more. So Avraham is saying, according to the way I'm explaining this, that I'm already been made rich. So thank you very much. I don't need you to say you made me more rich. Okay, I think we've got time for um, one more. Um, well, it's been quite long. Where can we start? Posit kaftalat. So having said, I'm not going to take anything, then Abraham adds a sort of codicil, some small print, and says, well, I will take a little bit. <speaking in> Biladai, <Hebrew> apart from me, rak asher ochlu that which the lads ate, the asher halchu iti, and the portion of the men who went with me, aner eshkol umamre, and then aner eshkol umamre, who were mentioned earlier when the um, when the Palit, whom, Abraham, whom Rashi identified as Og, ok in Pasuk Yud-Gimel, came to tell Abraham that Lot had been captured, Abraham was there with Mamre and Enol and Eshkol. So they, they've been in the story. So he says, those three people, they will take their portion. So Abraham says, I'm not going to take anything, but my guys, they need their expenses paid. So, Asher Achlu, which they ate, is literal, but it's probably also a little bit metaphorical as well. That they consume, that's paying their expenses. So, I will take from the spoils that which is owed to these categories of people. Now, it's interesting to ask how many categories of people are there? So, look at Rashi. On the words Hana Arim, he says, Avodai, my servants, Asher Halchu Iti, who went with me. The old Aner Eshkol Umamre, and also there's Enar The problem is, and it's, it's not a problem that Rashi's answering, it's our problem actually in reading Rashi, is there are three categories in the Pasuk. There's Hana'arim, and there's the Anashim Asher iti, and there's Aner Eshkol Umamre. Now, as we will see, it may not be tonight, it might be next week. In fact, I think it will be next week. Aner Mamre and Eshkol. Rashi says they're not amongst the pursuers. They didn't literally go to war. And perhaps the simple reason why he says that is because there's no record of them going to war. So Rashi says that they were looking after the baggage. Now that sounds a little bit inconsequential, but in fact, in war, it's very important to guard the supply lines. So maybe we should talk about it as guarding the supply lines. That was what they did. Rashi says that. So what is meant by anashim asher holfu iti? Um, you see, you could read it as referring to Anna Eshkolomamre, but Rashi's ruled that out, or he's going to rule it out. So the question is are there, leaving aside Anna Eshkolomamre, are there two groups or one group? Is it one group which is called both Na'arim and Anashim, two ways of referring to the same group? anarim, the Chelek Anashim, Ha'anashim, or is it two groups? There's narim. And there's anashim asher and there's a third group, but we're leaving that aside. Now, reading the pasuk, it, it does sound better, but it's two groups. There's naarim, and there's anashim asher The problem is Rashi doesn't refer to the anashim at all, and the Rashi actually takes out the word anashim, and puts it puts asher together with the naarim, which he describes as Avadai. So either you can say that Rashi doesn't mention the anashim because there's nothing to add. The Pasuk is explicit about them. The Rashi doesn't need to add if the Pasuk is talking explicitly. Or you can say that Rashi identifies the avadim and the na'arim. Sorry, the na'arim and the anashim. He says the na'arim are avadim. That's what Rashi explains, because you might wonder where all these lads have come from, these na'arim. So Rashi explains that means the word avadim. And Rashi, according to this way of reading Rashi, identifies the Na'arim with the Anashim. That doesn't explain why they get two different names. Personally, I prefer the first explanation I gave you, that Anashim Asher Halucho Iti is not the same as Na'arim, but Rashi doesn't seem to feel need to mention it because it's explicit in the passage. Okay, what we haven't done is... Um, uh, well, we haven't done the rest of that Rashi, basically. So I think we will leave that until next week. Mietaschem, we'll meet again next week, and we will start again from Perikid Dalat Pasuk Kaf Dalat. So, uh, are there any questions? Are there any observations at this point? No. I Brother, say, I will... Sorry, just the previous pasuk when we mentioned Imiyachod baAdzroch. Now. They're pretty specific terms. Is the reason for this? I mean, is it just basically these are maybe the most, the cheapest items from Warlock? He's basically saying that, yeah, that, that's kind of, I won't take even the, the least significant items. Um, yes, I think, um, you know, in the absence of Rashi saying anything else and giving any more significance, yes, they are very, very insignificant items. There's a beautiful midrash that by the virtue of Abraham refraining from taking any hut, his children get the mitzvah of Sitzit. And by virtue of not taking any suruk al, which apparently is made of leather, his children get the mitzvah of filling. Um, so there's some connection between the and the on the one hand, and these mitzvah, these items on the other. And people um, go deep into that connection. But Rashi doesn't go there at all. And I think it's reasonable to say that Rashi doesn't have anything to say because they represent. The smallest items that you could take as part of this call. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. We will stop there. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, thank everybody. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.